Just a quick note before we start. This entire first season of Inspired Business was recorded before the coronavirus outbreak in the UK. Hence, there being no mention of it in the interviews. Thanks. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Inspired Business, the business podcast from the University of Derby. During this series, we are bringing you inspiring stories from across the business landscape in Derby, Derbyshire and beyond. We discuss the issues affecting your business and provide key insights from our guests for you to take away. I'm Toby Bradford, your host for the series. I'm joined by my co-host, business expert, Angela Tooley, who will offer you valuable analysis on the topics we cover. In this episode, we're going to talk to John Eno about how he's been able to make his passion and his hobby his business. I'm here with Angela Tooley, our resident business expert. Now, Angela, you know John. Yes, I do. John's a great supporter of the university. He comes in and works with a number of our students and as well as that supports a number of our business events. We had an event last year and he brought along his band and entertained all our, our business people as they network together. So, uh, yes, I know him very well. He's got a great business. He's increasingly successful. He's had a great couple of years, but not just his music business, which is what he's known for locally, but also he's farmed and he's now beekeeping in France, I understand. So he's he's taken a lot of his passions and converted them into commercially sustainable enterprises. Yes. And we talk in great detail about some of his passions. Anyway, without further ado, let's go and hear what John has to say. And so I'd like to welcome Jonathan Eno to our Inspired Business Podcast. Hello, Jonathan. We'd like to introduce yourself. Hello, and what a pleasure to be here. Yes, my name's John Eno, and I'm the CEO of Hot House Music Schools. So what does that mean? What do you do? What is, what is Hot House? So I have a mission in my life. I exist to enrich and empower young people through the, uh, the joys of music, and I'm trying to make sure that we change lives. And we really would like everybody to value what music education can bring to them regardless of whether they want to be a musician so in this hothouse music school so what what do you do you you bring kids into school classrooms or do you go out to them well it's a good question actually so what is a hothouse music school so if you've come across stagecoach mm-hmm. stagecoach is like a drama school where children will attend and they'll learn acting and lessons within another school building so that's essentially what we do we offer music lessons music ensembles recording and international touring for young people across the uk that's something that stands out to me touring international touring as wow. well not just touring around the uk so we've got a csr which means that we're dedicated to enshrining our delivery around these four guiding principles of access, nurture, employability and legacy. And so we hire a school in a local area and then we offer these activities to young people, always making sure that we're delivering on our CSR. And so we're hoping that the children will come to us because they're interested in music. But what we would like them to learn is the other skills that they get from music. So the ability to get on with friends, the ability to be aware of everybody else in your environment, the ability to be aware of how to perform and communicate in a space be aware of the wider world and their context and their responsibility within it so that's what we would like them to get out of a house education cool and when you tour with them you create 
bands for them? What, what are the So the general sort of customer storyline is they come in when they're five or six years old, they will learn a piano or a clarinet. After a year or so, they'll be invited to join one of our ensembles. And we've got lots of different ensembles right the way through up to 18 years old. And each of these ensembles are then given an opportunity to go on tour. So the younger ensembles are invited to go to Disneyland Paris and perform at Disneyland in front of the castle. And as the kids get older and they get better, then they get invited to go on more adventurous tours. So whether that's coast to coast of America or a European tour or like next year's tour we're going to be doing the Asian Peninsula we're doing Tokyo Olympics and Hong Kong and Singapore for the uh, the High Commissioner over in Singapore so the benefit of going on tour is that kids learn to look after themselves they get a bit more with it with life they know about culture and society they know what are the problems are that are affecting the whole world and that's key really because we want them to be able to think what do I want to change in life what do I want to be able to deliver not what do I want to do as a job but what do I want to change and by giving them those experiences they can make their own mind up about what's important to them cool I'm slightly jealous I'm thinking of joining one of your ensembles well we do have a gospel choir for adults based right here in Derby and I do believe there are some Derby University people who attend already and that uh, ensemble we really put that together because we felt that adults within our community needed a place for support within each other. Life's difficult enough being a grown-up. So we put this together and they sing all sorts of songs and then they get to go on tour. They've sung in Venice and next year they're doing Tuscany. And with a bit of luck, we might even do Cleethorpes. <laughs> Gotta love a bit of Cleethorpes. So... Is Hot House the only thing you do? Have you got any other irons in the fire or is it... Well, we do a lot. I personally do a lot of things. I'm one of those people who can't say no, who always says yes and is generally really interested in everything about life. So whether it comes to sales, we've got a uh, internet sales company, which is doing very well, where we sell sheet music and, you know, jazz-specific sheet music around the world. So I, what's that called? That's Big Bang Music. And rather a nice backstory to that one. I found that if you're quite kind to people, then life has a certain sense of karma and it'll treat you the right way. And a few years ago, I got a phone call from a friend of mine down in Colchester who'd been running a company called the American Stage Band Music Service. And it was at the time the biggest company in the country for selling our type of sheet music. And he said to me, John, it was New Year's Day. My wife's not very well. She's in hospital. I really can't cope with running a company. Are you interested in having it? And it was a case of, yeah, I'll get a lorry, I'll come down, I'll pick up half a million pounds worth of sheet music, I'll take it off your hands, how much do you want for it? Nothing whatsoever, just keep doing what we're doing, we love the fact that you like the music. Wow. Yeah, great times. You know, we, we believe the same thing. If we treat people well, they should, you know, they all treat you back. And we talk to the kids like that as well. If you treat an audience like a mirror, they'll reflect what you give them. And that's one of those guiding principles that we have. Brilliant. But big band music, jazz music, this is your thing. This is your style of music. Yeah, well, yeah it's supposed to be. So I started off as a little trumpet player back in Ripley, just up the A38. And I used to play the last post for all of the church ceremonies when I was only eight years old and I really wanted to be a classical musician which meant that I fancied going over to the Birmingham Conservatory of Music and becoming a, a proper soloist. Unfortunately as I was going through my university years I realised that I would get paid more for doing a commercial show with the BBC than I would do for doing a classical show with the Halle so I kind of went to the dark side and did the light entertainment stuff and did a gig with Michael Burke the news presenter and that was it never turned my eyes back on the classical road but from that point onwards I kind 
kind of fell in love with commercial music, everything from your Strictly Come Dancing right the way through to your classic big band. And that's my my favourite area of music. And is that, is that the area that you teach the kids? Because I mean, I've, I have seen your saxophone ensemble play in Derby and it, that's is that the kind of thing they're all doing and I would probably say that we're going through a generation of kids now that don't label things so whereas when we were growing up and we were little you were into punk or you're into mods or you were a rocker or you know everybody wanted to be something because it was part of their identity nowadays we strive really hard not to label things both business wise and education wise because as soon as you label something people get stuck to that and that's one of our issues with um, labeling kids if you you know say i've got autism or i'm on the send spectrum i've got i'm a vegetarian everybody wants you know if you give them a label they get stuck to that label there's a certain sense of gravity that drags you back to that all the time and we found that people have a perception if you say you're vegan or if you say you're uh, you ride a bike or if the people have got a concept of that and we don't want that for our young people so whereas the kids will learn a bit of big band music and a bit of rock and a bit of pop and a bit of folk a bit of latin we we don't classify it. We want them to think of they value music. And that's one of those big differences. We don't say we're a brass band. We're not an orchestra. We're not a sax. We are just musicians and we want them to value the music. Now, one thing we haven't talked about yet, but we'll need mentioning is um, you now have some letters after your name. Uh, yes. Um, where, where do I start with that one? So um, I'm assuming that we're talking about the British Empire Medal, which yeah. is very cool. And I'm super, super buzzed about it, actually. You know, when I was little, I used to be a trumpet player at school and I'd look at all my music teachers and they'd all have lots of letters after the names. It would be GSMD, LTCL. As a musician, as you pass your grade eight, you then go on to your diplomas and you can start getting letters after your name. And it was always something that I really wanted to do. My mum and dad never had that, you know, from working class background, they went to university did a uh, teaching certificate or a Bachelor of Education. I always wanted lots of letters, so I went and did a, a degree. I went and did a, a postgraduate at Leeds College of Music. I then did a Master's down at Anglia Ruskin. And then I did the GTP at Derby. And then literally two years ago, I decided I wanted to do something with my dad. My dad's a great piano player. So I said, Dad, let's go and do a diploma on our uh, piano and saxophone, just for fun, for no other reason. And uh, just to get a few more letters after me. It's just been a joke in the family that we try and get more letters so there's more letters after my name than that's actually in my name and then to my absolute amazement I got a letter through the post that said Mr. Eno would like to award you um, a British Empire medal for services to education and to be absolutely honest it's blown everything else out of the water I can't tell you how much this means to me and not because I'm big into the royal uh, royal family, not because I'm big into MBEs and all of that, but because actually I'm so aware that I've had a positive impact on a number of people's lives that they've cared with without me knowing anything about it to write a letter, to put together a pack, to say, please, can you let John know that we value him? And that is an absolute validation of what I believe about doing something for the right reason and then getting something in reward because it's the right thing to do. And I will use the British Empire Medal to help me keep delivering what I care about. You know, I really will go away and uh, I'll use it to get a meeting with the uh, Secretary of Education. I will use it to get through the door at the Musicians' Union because I'm passionate about our message of making sure that we can get kids a balanced education. So, you know, blown out of the water by it. And I can't tell those people enough how grateful I am that they uh, they cared enough to do that for me. I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit already, but 
why do you think Hot House has been so successful? Obviously, the way people feel about you to nominate you for a, a British Empire medal says something about that. But why do you think it's been so successful? I'd like to link this to sort of like my personal development, really. So when I grew up in Ripley Mill Hill, I grew up in a an ex-mining type community. There wasn't a lot going on. The aspiration was very low. You were ever only going to go and work in the brickyard. There wasn't really the opportunity for everybody else around me to go and do more than that. It was quite limiting. So I was fortunate enough to have my parents who think, right, you're going to go to university. It didn't matter which university, you were going to go to university. But as a result of it, I found that as I grew up, I was quite an arrogant young man and I didn't like the way that I'd grown up. I didn't like the way that I was behaving with friends. I didn't like the way that I was to my peers and my and my staff. So I remember when I was 18, making a mental choice to change my life and say, I can be a better person. I can be a kinder person. I can make a difference to those people around me. And I was, I think I used it, the music to cover the fact that I was extremely shy and I decided I wasn't going to be shy anymore. I was going to go to university and try and be a different person. So I took that, the whole sense of being able to be in charge of your own destiny and, and went off to university. And from that point onwards, I've always thought of life as a series of learning things for when things go wrong. There's always something good in everything. So at the end of my first year, when I crashed out of my first year exams through anxiety, and I had to go and talk to the doctors about beta blockers and depression, it was a really good moment of learning because I was able to be aware of what everybody else might be going through. And, you know, at the end of the day, somebody said, you know, it's not third world debt, it's not famine in Africa. Africa, you know, it's his only music, you're only playing a trumpet for somebody. And these things make a difference. So I gradually picked up a few of these life skills and got a gig playing on a cruise ship over in America. I used to do the Caribbean routes. So I played in Jamaica twice, I used to play on Dr. No's Pier, you know, that pier where James Bond is. So we used to do a show there every uh, Tuesday and Thursday. And as part of my time when I was in America, I used to go and do some outreach at high schools over there. And it came quite clear that the Americans have this perspective on life that you should try and do what you enjoy rather than try and fix what you can't do do what you enjoy because they are assuming that if you know not everybody's going to become a world-class American footballer but if you can throw a ball a long way you might as well go and be the quarterback and enjoy the time that you're doing that you know, that activity whereas that's completely different to the UK system. When you were growing up, when I was growing up back in Ripley, the kids were, wow, you can't do this. You're not very good at math. So you need to go and have extra math lessons. You're not very good at English. You're going to get a D for your GCSE. So you need to go and practice extra homework. And by learning in America what, what was important, you know, doing the things that you enjoy. When we came back to the UK from my touring days, I was able to try to set up a music school which focused on saying to the kids, you know, if you're really happy, have a go at playing really fast in your solos you have a go at that and if you're really happy at playing high you have a go at doing that one don't worry about the fact that you can't play really quickly don't worry about the fact that you can't sight read we'll find a way around those things and it was that kind of you can do this you can be positive that meant that we grew really really quickly and it's taken a good 17 18 years for me to refine the uh, methodology but now when kids arrive to us we are right away from day one and making sure that they are happy 
day two, you know, it's making sure that being kind to themselves and their people, them around them. And then day three, it's making sure that they continue to do that all the way through their journey. And hopefully that's what some of our parents and our, you know, our other stakeholders see. They don't see education. They see an approach to life, which their kids might be able to take with them. And, you know, we like to think that that's paying benefits now because some of our alumni are going on not only to be amazing Musicians, obviously, the drummer for Noel Gallagher is one of ours. The well, trumpet player, yeah. the trumpet player for Michael Bublé, he's one of our alumni. You know, the guy who does X Factor, he's one of ours. We've got some phenomenal musicians, but actually, the lady who is the legal counsel for the Paralympic Committee, she's one of ours. The, you know, the the list is endless. You know, the partner of Bird and Bird, they're one of ours. The guy who's setting public health um, spending for the NHS is one of ours. You know, went to Oxford. We're super proud of those, and we're hoping that they've taken something from our approach about making making their lives count. Because it's not just about the music. That's it's the whole thing. It's just absolutely not that, about the music. Having that state of mind where I know I'm good at this I'm going to try and be as good as I can possibly be at this so the things I'm not so good at they won't matter so much because I'm going to be so good at that absolutely and the Americans are all about that you know they're about what can I make a dollar on what can I what am I good at have I got the you know have I got the gift of the gab am I great at selling or have I got a great product and with something that the UK we need to do more of you know we need to look at our kids and think what are their natural talents not what are the bits that they can't do and what we need to make sure that they're really good at what they what are their natural talents what do they naturally want to be able to do and achieve and then invest that time in making that part of their life happy and then hopefully we'll go back up those oecd tables for um 15 16 year old happiness and having a purpose in life that's our mission it's it's weird isn't it it seems to me that we want everybody to look the same we want everybody to have three a's at a level we want everybody to have all nines at um at gcse but that's not natural, is it? In any sense of the world, we've got people, the students who are going through who want to be welders and we've got students who go through who want to be farmers. You know, we've, it, we can't possibly have everybody having the same skill set. We know they need to be functional, but, you know, the people who go on to make a difference in society and community and business are those that have got something different about them, those that have got a passion or a belief in something other than just being good at everything. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because, you know, we've got a great relationship with Derby Uni at the moment. We have a lot of apprentices coming to the uni and also a lot of interns and when we get the piece of paper through and you're reading the application for an internship everybody looks the same everybody's done Duke of Edinburgh up to gold everybody's got their GCSE English and maths and you know sciences how are we supposed to possibly tell what the difference is until you meet them you know it's really difficult now so actually the best people that we've had recently from the uni have been the ones that are your foreign students and you know Derby Uni's got an incredible tradition I think you're number one in the country for your care for international students and that's something I wasn't aware of but since we've had international students work for us we've been blown away by their the caliber of their workload their their work ethic and what they deliver is sensational so we've had a lady from poland and one from spain they were part of the twitter takeover campaign and were sensational were really strong year one candidates in social media and digital marketing did a fabulous job living in another country learning in a foreign language you know, only being 18, 19 years old, making those mental choices to go out into the world and make the world a smaller place meant that 
they've obviously got something about them. And then we've got, currently we've got an intern, a driven intern from the university doing marketing for us. And she's called Veronica Pally and she's from Moldova. And in her interview, she said, can you repeat that again, please? Because I'm currently juggling five languages in my head and I'm not sure I understood what you said. I'm trying to think of all of the students that we've got in our schools around the country thinking, which one of our students could go to another country, have a conversation with an employee about a creative industries post like what we've got and then have the gumption to say can you repeat that again because I'm juggling five languages in my head that says something about the quality of students at Derby University that we're attracting in Derby but it also says something about you know the fact that they're desperate to make a difference to the world and you know that's what I would like to think that we're trying to do with our students is to empower them to think you know how do I make a difference how do I make a change our international tours about making the world a smaller place music's the universal language so we really want them to be able to communicate with different cultures and different societies so that they can then say i'm going to do this they're not just going to go through university they're not just going to go through an apprenticeship and say right i'm going to have a job now for the next four to five years at rolls royce kids aren't like that and we uh, we've got to play our part now then we're going to go back again Great we've stuff. talked about talked about this a little bit about where you've come from because i understand you you have some musical heritage sort of it's in the blood it is yeah. going back quite a long way it does well you know a few hundred years ago i come from a family of von schweckels who are uh, bavarian sausage minstrels so they used to try- <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah sorry don't know what to so say they, really. do they play the sausages They're, yes absolutely so they would um, travel around bavaria with their sausage grinder their um, organ grinder and uh, whilst they were making sausages they would sing to the general public and then they would try and get people to buy their sausages and that <laughs> i don't know whether there's any uh, truth in that story but that's one that's been passed down our family for years and that's all of my father's side have been big musicians so we're related to brian eno who's uh, u2 and roxy music and then there's another guy called roger eno who does a lot of work for the bbc my great great grandfather was principal clarinetist for kaiser wilhelm's orchestra in world war one and our family was interned apparently so we are music through and through my great uncle Carl, he used to live in a terraced house down down in East Anglia and he took a saw to the upstairs and cut out the first floor so that he could build a church organ in a row of terraced houses and Popular I'm with sure the neighbours was he <laughs> the neighbours didn't really know what to make of him especially as he used to wear a suit of armour I think to go to work he was one of those odd sides yes but yeah, a definite musical heritage and all of our family are now musical based. My father, ex-head of music. My brother is a deputy vice um, chair of music down at Dulwich College and my uncle was a head of music. So there's a pretty big tradition, really. And what, can you remember what your first musical experience was? I Absolutely. And like most kids that I've come to realise, the very first time that I played a musical instrument, I would have been five years old. I burst into tears. I can, rem- I can remember it to the day and I kid you not it still happens children are so emotionally moved for good and for bad you know by their first experience on a musical instrument they will burst into tears they will burst into laughter they'll run around the room there is something intrinsically earth-based about making a sound on a musical instrument which is just awesome and the power of that is um, it can be completely overwhelming so that was my first experience and quite quickly we went into um, orchestras and bands over at Tina in Derby Music 
Music, South Derbyshire Music Centre. And actually, my favourite memories would be at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club when I was uh, 19 years old and I'd just driven our family Larder Samara car down the M1. Yeah, it fell apart halfway down. And my, me and my younger brother went to watch the Count Basie Orchestra for the first time. And it was led by a chap called Mr. Frank Foster. And we had our first cigar in an actual jazz club watching the best big band in the world and that was one of those moments where we thought yeah we are really living now so that was cool so was that one of those things where it's like yeah that's what I want to do I want to be that guy over there that is exactly one of those things you know it it happens to lots of different people at different times and whereas my brother said I want to be that guy who's playing the tenor saxophone I said I wanted to be the guy who's standing at the front conducting making sure that everybody else is doing their job properly and I ran my own ensembles and my own groups from that point on right the way through to today so yeah it's been a good time now we talked about sausages <laughs> and we're talking about how you got to be where you are you uh, had a, an interest in farming and meat at one point i really did i credit this to my well i think i credit this to my wife really because she's um, one of those people who inspires me to do what i do with kids and she said that she's never had any pets in her life and she her mum and dad wouldn't allow her to have any pets so on a whim we went and got a sheepdog and it was an absolute joy to have this other reason in our lives to get up to go and look after the dog and within the space of a week of getting the sheepdog by some pure miracle we'd ended up going round to a farm and buying 12 piglets and we <laughs> we'd never we'd never had farms and we'd never done this before we'd never registered with defra we didn't get all of our eal numbers for looking after the animals and we'd just gone and done this and within i think a year that our farm had snowballed into um, pigs sheep donkeys goats and uh, cows and we quickly realized that and we wanted to do real farming so that was holistic farming so we weren't injecting them with um, antibiotics we were doing this the slow way and we wanted to do it organically and we wanted to see whether we would be emotionally involved with looking after the animals and whether we would have an issue with eating the animals at the end of it and as it turned out we found that if you looked after the animals and cared for them there wasn't a problem with taking them to the abattoir there wasn't a problem with going to the butchers after and we would do the butchering ourselves and there wasn't a problem with eating it. What there was a problem was going to Tesco's and seeing 10,000 chicken breasts in plastic wrappers and kind of this whole movement of environmentalism and eating less meat comes from the fact that people don't know where the meat comes from and they don't know how long it takes to get there. One cow would last a family over a year and so we eat far too much meat and not because we need meat but just because of the accessibility of it. It is there and by running our own farm and making sure that we knew where it came from it's kind of rebalanced what we think is important in life being outdoors breathing walking talking getting the movement going looking after something that needs care is a, a real privilege and actually for all the farmers that i know and i know some of my best friends are farmers they do have the best job in the world because you will never find an animal that gives you any grief or gives you any back chat or gives you any negativity an animal is absolutely honest all of the time so whereas we might go to work and there'll be some customer who turns up who's had a terrible day and they take it out on you the animals will not do that they will only give you trouble if there's something wrong as long as they've got you know water place to stay they're being looked after and you treat them kindly they will give it you back and they're very very much like children you know if you treat them well they will treat you well backwards and um, the lessons that we've learned there farming 
we we adopt in our life to the day. Do you still farm? So unfortunately, the government decided uh, in its great wisdom to do a compulsory purchase order on our farm um, because they wanted to build a big new road down the A50. So we were forced to sell all of our animals and they were going to knock our house down. So they kicked us out of our house. Not sore about it at all. <laughs> yeah, he says. And then we found out a week after they kicked us out that they've decided to shelve the project and they're not knocking down our house now or our old farm. And it's just there empty up on the A50 in Utoxta. So we don't farm now, but we have decided to um, move to a place in France where we've got some land and we exported our bees because we do bees as well. We're very careful for the environment. We took our bees over and we now have English bees with passports that live in France and we make English we actually had to have passports. We actually had to have B passports. Individual for <laughs> every single B. <laughs> a group passport. A lot of people don't know, but there's a um, an inspectorate or a ministry, a ministry of bees in the UK. Sounds like something out of Harry Potter. But we had to have this inspector come round in his full bee suit and he inspected all the bees, all the hives, gave them a little check, took a little photo for their passports and gave them a piece of paper. And we exported these bees to, um, to our farm in France now. And our long-term dream is that we will go back to farm once we've finished our journey with uh, with Hot House. But we did take the bees under the channel tunnel in the back of a uh, minibus. And if anybody wants to know what fear is really like, driving a minibus full of 4,000 bees is terrifying. So we had to let DEFRA know. We had to let uh, all of the channel tunnel know. We had to let the French animal authorities know that we were coming. Did, and they, basically, put, did they put you in a carriage on yeah, your own? Yeah, no, you would think because so. We had to put the beehives in muslin. So so you wrap your beehives up in quite a lot of muslin and then you tie it at the top and then you put it in there and you only have a certain amount of time because the bees they warm up quite a lot and then all the way around the minibus uh, we had to put big stickers saying you know transporting live bees so if there was a crash or an accident and all of them escaped the fire engines would know to come with a special type of foam so they could stop the bees escaping and then we drove down from Derby all the way down to our farm in uh, Brittany and about an hour and a half before we arrived at our farm a bee landed on my shoulder in the uh, in the driver's seat and we realized that we had an escapee boom, boom, boom. Um, more than one escapee we had quite a few bees that started to escape from one of the hives that we we're transporting so it was um, quick on with the uh, the bee suit and do the last hour driving with a few bees flying around the minibus just to get them down to our farm in france so well, you got pictures of you driving in a bee suit surely <laughs> In a bee suit. And, you know, I like to think, uh, actually, it was one of those best moments of life because now all of my friends over at Marketing Derby, John Forkin, the whole team, they all get regular French honey. And if that that wouldn't be happening if I hadn't made that um, that fateful journey under the tunnel. I'm, I think we must be the only family in the UK that's got bees that's gone under the channel tunnel. So um, very cool. Good stories. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing stuff. Now, talking to France... Moving on, it's a it's one of those strange segues that I'm going to make now. You, you're living in France now, but going back to Hot House, Hot House isn't just in the UK; it's in various other countries. It is, yeah. Um, it's in Paris. Well, we're looking at launching our first school in Paris. It's yeah. actually in Lyon. Lyon. So we, we think Lyon is our uh, going to be our European headquarters. 
So part of our vision for Hot House, because we really believe in what we do for children, we want to take Hot House across the globe and we want to bring our approach of education and, and what life is all about to children all over the world. So we've got a headquarters in Singapore, which is being run by my best friend from France, a guy called Benoit Trouvert. And I've known him for 38 years and he's a trumpet player like me. And so he's running that. And so we've got students learning in Singapore and he, he's in charge of our Asian Peninsula development. And then we've got a school in uh, Lyon, which is being run by Anastasia Massé. And she's going to be in charge of developing the European arm of our company. And the next bit will be Germany and Bavaria, funnily enough, going back to home routes. And then we've got plans to launch our headquarters in Texas for North America. And we've got 100 schools lined up for North America in phase A of the international expansion. So we really do, we've got a very ambitious um, vision for the company. We know it works. We know the model works. We've tried it. We've duplicated it. We've got an incredible non-executive team. And, you know, this, and all people that I know are successful have surrounded themselves with people who have succeeded in their field and have not succeeded straight away in their field, who've tried lots of different things. You know, there's the old adage that you have to fail before you can succeed. And that's true for every single thing that I can possibly think of. And we, one of our non-execs is um, the ex-business group director for Dolby over in San Francisco. Used to work in big corporate structures, big corporate functions. And we deliberately thought, you know, if we want to be a big, you know, billion dollar company in whatever many years we need somebody who's ran one of those so that they can come down with that we need somebody who's been a specialist in startups and growing SMEs to be in large companies so we've got the chief technical officer for Machine Max down in London they're a shell subsidiary company He's one of our non-execs. And then we've also got an employment solicitor who's um, focused on SME legalities and making sure that we're doing all the things the correct way from the ground up. So we've got a phenomenal team and we, we work our business plans on three, five and seven year uh, cycles. And it's working. We are ahead of where we should be on our projections and forecasts at the moment. So with a bit of luck, the European school will be rocking and rolling soon. And we I'll get to spend more time back in my native France, which would be super cool. Brilliant, brilliant. So thinking about where you are now and where you're looking to get to, so when you started out, when was it that you started out and was it just you when you started out? So it, it was just me when I started out because i desperate to work out whether this approach of just saying to the kids, you know, if you enjoy that, let's do that. Let's really focus on that and enjoy that works. And it grew 200% in the first year. And within two years, we had five staff. And so now my my team that I've got around me are all on message about what we're trying to deliver. And, you know, we are growing at a rate of this year's 170% on last year. So the, the rate of growth is huge. And I think, you know, within three years, there'll be 60, 70 schools across the UK, hothouse schools. And, you know, we've got this target of reaching 1.6% of the school population in the UK and it seems very real and we want to be the musical version of Stagecoach and the musical version of all of these swimming schools we want to be doing this we want to be reaching kids and giving them the opportunity of a hothouse education so in terms of your story you know where you've come from you've got a long history yeah. of music and you know where you're going so do you think that that helps you knowing knowing your personal story helps your business story i you know what i really do and this is i wasn't aware of this until rather recently when i started delivering talks and speeches but when we go to music college or when you go to university you do a lot of talking about 
um, the history of music. It's called musicology. And if you're going to become a famous composer, a film composer, you're not allowed to start composing music that you would like for that film until you've studied the music from 1950, the music from 1920, and then the silent movies. You have to know the journey of where you've come from to be able to deliver the next development, the next level. And we've had that drilled into us for generations as musicians. And it only only recently twigged that, actually knowing where we've come from, you know, your 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 history as a family, your the way you've grown up is the way that you lead your life. Actually, that translates perfectly into your business world. So if you're leading a life that's making a um, positive contribution, you're thinking about decisions, you're actively choosing kindness and positivity and to look at the hard questions in your own personal world, and, and that's natural and you're happy with that, you know, 99 times out of 100, you're going to choose exactly the same methodology for your business. And uh, the way we've um, experienced is that if you do do that, there's nothing that can go wrong with your business. The worst thing that can happen to your business you'll be taking that and turning it on its head and it'll become a positive. So actually, knowing where you've come from, from a business, knowing where we started as a business is absolutely fundamental in knowing that we want to get to being the world's biggest um, music education provider. And, you know, the whole point of where we are today, knowing our story, all of my staff knowing their story, all of the students knowing their story now is going to be fundamental for them saying, I know where I've come from. I know where I want to go to. I know the difference I want to make. And I, I quite like that. But that's being true to yourself in a sense. So you won't be successful in business unless you are true to yourself. I think that's true. I don't. I, the people that I get on the best with are the ones that live business the way that they live their lives. The ones that care about what they do in their business are the ones that care about things in life. If you look at the guy who runs Cozy Fund, Peter Ells, stunning chap. You know, not only is he doing a great business, he's actually making a difference to people's lives. And those are the people that are running super successful successful businesses but enjoying the process at the same time the ones that are chasing the dollar just trying to chase the sales that they're not the sort of people that um, I interact with on that daily basis the ones that I do interact with are the ones that are actually you know making a difference for generations to come ripples in a pond it's all about ripples in the pond for generations we're going to be making a difference but that comes back to doing what you enjoy doesn't it do what you enjoy and I guess that all comes back to being that um, that young trumpet player who goes into the high school in America and seeing this uh, teacher say to him, oh you're great at throwing that ball really far let's go and do that and put you as quarterback and that kid was happy for the rest of his life still know him now 25 years on very cool we're going to come back at something we may have talked about already but i just want to focus on it why is music and creativity and creative expression in general so important so we want people who are coming to us that can be problem solvers and creativity is one of those key parts key tenets of problem solving and so you've got to be able to be creative to be able to solve the world's problems and so i think the ability to play in an ensemble the ability to respect the people that are around you whilst bringing something that you are caring about to the table is um key so that teamwork um all comes from creativity the ability to listen and share and coach all comes from creativity so if we're not giving our young people the space to be creative or the space to try and the space to fail perhaps even more importantly then we're not creating a workforce that are going to be able to adapt to portfolio careers i mean how many people do we know that are are working multiple types of jobs now so uh, i not only do i do education but i do coaching not only do i do coaching i've got um 
company that sells sheet music around the world. I've got an instrument rental business. I do farming. I care about bees and environment. We we have portfolio lives. It's not one dimensional. And I think that comes from creativity. And the kids today who are going through the School of Digital Arts in Manchester, for example, are learning how to be, how to adapt and to how to monetize their their skill set. They're coming from this, where do I want to change something in the world? What do I need to do? I need to be creative, so I need to be able to adapt. So we, we're looking at creating courses and content, which makes a difference to young people, I think. Now, you live in France now, but you still see Derby very much as your home. Coming from Ripley, yeah. and <laughs> Derby is still the base it's my the spiritual base of, homeland absolutely base of hothouse as well derby is the you know from my point of view derby is the birthplace of innovation and of everything good in the world has come out of derby and derbyshire and everything that's good that's happened in my life has come out of derby i'm immensely proud of what we do in our small little city you know it's like a village everybody knows each other yeah everybody's outward thinking and forward thinking and our greatest asset has got to be its human resource you know the people that live here and what grow up in in a relatively small geographic area we have you know world-leading industries from Patanair through to Bombardier through to Rolls-Royce to Toyota they are sensational people and actually from a musical perspective we struggle a bit by losing some of the talent and the brain drain through to the music conservatoires in Leeds and Manchester and Cardiff and London and I think what um, Derby Uni is doing is it's addressing that and actually we are super keen to be involved with the university to try and make sure that the the quality that we've got in Derby and the quality of people that we attract to Derby, this sensational workforce that we've got, are given the very best education and opportunity to to follow their their paths there, to lead a life which makes a difference to them, you know, to be able to make that choice. And there's, so there's people at the university like Chris Bussell, who's the Pro Vice Chancellor for Life, who was making a real difference to the way that this city is looking at outwards you know whilst we are caring about our heritage and where we've come from you need to know where you've come from to where you're going to go and and our city is all about innovation and making a difference to the world and i think you know derby's on the cusp of doing something extremely special and that's all focused around the university and the longer that we can be involved with the university the more that we can be an outlet for their students the more that we can help them with their research the better it will be for our business you know this relation this b2b relationship that we've got thanks to people like Bev Crichton and Julie Stone that is intrinsic to our success but it's also intrinsic to the success of the uni and it's vital to the health of our city we will be a modern you know zero carbon city with great environmental credentials we will be making a difference in the world and we you know as a population of our city we need to get behind initiatives that are being led by the university uh, to actually make a difference because we want our next generation to be the ones that own what we create for them. We want them to take it on to the next level. And our company in Hot House, a lot of people think we just teach music, but we're not doing that. We're actually teaching kids to be the next generation of parents. We want the ones that we teach now to understand that we're teaching them to be the best that they can be so that their children, their next generation, have got a chance to make this world into a better place. And so if we all adopt that strategy, that thought process of making a difference and making sure that our people of today are outward-looking, engaging, thoughtful, we're going to be in a good place in a few years' time. That's what I want it to be. Excellent. Now, we're moving towards the end of our podcast. 
want to ask you quite a difficult question. What do you consider to be your greatest achievement? What's given you the most satisfaction? Actually, my greatest achievement is, on a personal development level, learning to appreciate a hard question. So I've tried to grow Hothouse twice um, in its lifetime to be a national company. Unfortunately, on both occasions, a, a family member suffered from cancer and was terminally ill and we ended up having to look, look after them for the end of their life, which meant that we couldn't go through with the process. And actually, I appreciate the fact that that might be life telling me that I wasn't ready to do what I needed to do. And if I would have tried, I would have perhaps come up short in certain areas. And recently, well, since 2018, I feel that thanks to my friends and my family, the people around me, that everybody, my business community, the people like Bob Betts, who runs Smith of Derby, who's been a business mentor, people like Norman Kerfoot from Advance Consultancy in Utoxeter, Elved Howells from Dolby, all of these people have contributed to this place where having grown up through education and being nursemaided into how we receive and deliver information, I'm now of the ability to be able to go be challenged. I want to be challenged. I want to be asked the difficult question. I want to be asked the hard question so that to be the best that I can be, to do the right thing, both um, within the business and towards other people, I have to be able to accept that the hard questions are not a personal criticism. Now, when you grow, and you might know this, having grown up a little bit in uh, education, but when you're in education, everything feels like a personal attack. If you're not careful, they say, oh, I need you to do this differently because we've gone from school to university to teaching. We've not had the real life experience to knock those corners off. And that's really, I know that a lot. I, I experienced that a lot in education education and so now finally after whatever it is 25 years of trying to do this people have uh, knocked some of those corners off and I'm ready to uh, accept those tough questions so when somebody says why did you employ somebody for two months longer than you need to I have to come back with a reason and you know accept that I was in the wrong or vice versa why didn't I give this person a longer a longer probationary period the HR and employment is the most challenging part of what we do and the questions that I get directed around that are the most challenging and, and those are the ones that I appreciate so hopefully I will be a better person and be able to answer and help more people by having gone through that process okay that's a very interesting interesting reaction to that question yeah it's not um you know i i can imagine i could have said actually the time that i played Dali abbey park for the first time or the time i went on stage with jamiroquai or the time that i did a performance with gary puckett in the union gap band those are all nice moments but actually the ones that are going to make the difference are the ones that i'm not comfortable with so the ones that i am having to learn from the ones where things go wrong those are the bits that are the most valuable to me so that's the bit that I would recommend other people to be open towards is to accept that those negatives are actually, you know, a, a, a really good lesson in disguise. Something you can learn from. Ab every minute of every day. Now, really, almost, really almost there now. Yeah. So this is the question we ask all our podcastees. What's the single most important piece of business advice you can give to our podcast listeners? Keep moving. Absolutely keep moving. There's one thing that I've learned in every single bit of my life is that don't be still. Do not be static. And that means both as a business and both physically, both verbally. If as long as you're not moving, things are not going to happen. Procrastination starts when you don't move. 
and your thought processes become static when you don't move. If you need to get some headspace and you need to make some decisions, go for a walk, go for a walk, move. I think movement is the key to everything. So when we perform in uh, music, we're always moving. It's never still. You know, whether we're in a recording studio or on a stage, we're always moving. When we're talking to our partners and our friends and our business partners, we're always animated. We're always moving. So I think the um, the best bit of advice that I can give to anybody is to move. Excellent. Just move. Move. Well, thank you, John. Thank um, you, sir. Now, where can people find you? So normally, I, you can find me at Nine Longanon in Plugrifet in Brittany. <laughs> and if anybody's uh, out there in France and they would like to come for a swim in the pool and a glass of champagne, the door is always open. Heated pool. Heated pool, always a heated pool. And I'll be there from uh, Saturday onwards. So if anybody's knocking about, just come and knock on the door. There's always a warm welcome for you. But if you want to find me digitally, you can certainly find me on our social media platforms. You know, if you have a quick Google for HH Music School, you'll find lots of us there. And uh, obviously you can follow me on twitter if you'd like to which is just john eno and i'd love to hear from more and more people excellent well thank you very much for joining us today appreciate that i'm back here again with angela tooley our business expert so angela that was a very wide-ranging interview we touched on quite a lot of things what's the thing that struck you most from that i think his story is really interesting because he's a great example how hard work and persistence actually pays off. And he recognised very early on that having a plan is really important, but also sometimes things don't always go to plan and actually you need to adapt. Life happens around you, particularly when you're an entrepreneur, you're very much at the centre and the heart of the business. And sometimes that it's circumstances don't always mean that you can do things in your business that perhaps you set out to do at that time. But John has shown that, you know, you need to be flexible all the time to react when circumstances change. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's it. And and he's shown, and I'm so pleased for John, that, you know, the last two, three years, actually all the hard work that he's put in, he's now reaping the benefits from it. And he's in a position personally and professionally that is great. Expanding internationally, setting up in France, Singapore. But that didn't happen by chance. A lot of small businesses don't think that having a plan for their business is important for them. They think it's something that only large businesses do. And we're not talking about, a, you know, a 50-page formal business plan or anything like that. But even just having, you know, an A4 sheet of paper or a bit of flip chart paper stuck on the wall that kind of sort of lays out your sort of short and medium term goals and some clear actions as to what you need to do to achieve those is more than enough for for a a smaller business because it keeps you focused it stops you being we can talk about busy fools but actually you know sometimes you need that challenge to say well actually am I doing the right things are the things that I am doing going to help me achieve what I am setting out to achieve and that's really important not just personally but professionally and I think John's a great example we see so many business owners who are disillusioned with where their business is and sometimes these are hugely successful businesses but actually they've kind of become a bit of a a, a chain around people's neck and actually they can no longer achieve some of their personal objectives because they've they've tied down by the business because they're they're caught up in the business they don't have anyone who can support them who can help take some of the strain and so I think it's really important that that alongside 
having a plan for your business as an entrepreneur or a business owner, you set aside some personal goals. And that may be that in five years time, you want to partially step away from the business and do other things or as John's doing spending more time in France doing other things and things like that but actually by having that you can then start identifying what the gaps are to help you achieve that and it may be that if you want to partially exit the business in five years you need to start thinking now about well what do I need to put in place do I have the team around me who can take that business over when I'm not in? If not, then how do I find those people? You may decide that actually you want to sell the business, that that isn't a quick process, but actually having those personal goals is so is just so important. The point that John made about being able to be yourself within your business, because, because it's his passion, who he is personally helps mould his business. And as his personality changes, as his own personal goals change, then the business will change with him. Yeah. And what I think he used the phrase, so remember your beginning, and and your story and be true to yourself. And that really resonated with me, actually. I think not only from a personal perspective, actually, I think when you start looking at people and, and talking to people about how happy they are in their business, in their careers, in their life and things like that, quite often it's because it doesn't fit with who they are. And that sort of causes some of that. And actually, John's really lucky that he's he's found something that moulds his personal life and his passions and his business together. But actually, a lot of people don't quite fit. The interesting thing for me was he took me by surprise when I asked him about what was his greatest achievement. And he said the challenges and he said being uncomfortable and he said being put in a difficult position because how you respond to that is what makes you who you are in a sense. Absolutely. And if you don't put yourself in those uncomfortable situations, if you don't challenge yourself, then in some respects you you learn by the mistakes you made and those challenges. And that's how you improve and you learn and you grow your business because that forces you into a position where you take a step back and you reassess and move in a different direction if need be or adjust your plans. But you do need that to almost force you to sort of step away from the detail, look more strategically at what's happening and make those assessments and have those honest conversations with yourself and your team. Again, it's thinking creatively and John was very much an advocate of giving children, the pupils who come through with schools, just a, a creative idea and the idea that you need to be flexible, you need to, to be able to respond to different situations. Yes, and those soft skills are so important nowadays. That sort of creativity, the problem solving and things like that. It doesn't matter whether you're in a creative business or a manufacturing company or a services focused business. Actually, they're transferable skills and they are the skills that are going to ensure that a business survives because in an ever-changing world, and we've spent a lot of time in these podcasts talking about the challenges in terms of how you adapt and adjust to the external factors that are happening around us, they're the skills that the best businesses have that make them survive and grow in what have been quite challenging circumstances over recent years. So whether that's a small business, a one-man operation, which John was when he first started out, or a larger business. Yeah, and actually small businesses are better at this because they're not caught up in lots of process and policy and governance. So actually they can make decisions very quickly and change very quickly 
compared with the large businesses, which is a bit like sometimes steering an oil tanker. Finding value in what you're doing, being true to yourself as far as running a business as John's doing is important. But do you think people are being more aware of that when they're taking jobs? They're thinking, I'm not just thinking about it's a job for money. I'm trying to earn as much money as I can. They want some more fulfilment from their roles. I think that's increasingly important particularly to young people to the the millennials and things like that is actually i think there's a recognition that a company's values and culture and are they aligned to to me are really important i think we're seeing more so that potential employees are looking they're asking a lot more of a company not just in terms of how much am i going to earn and what are my what the opportunities for promotion and things like that but they need that fit they need to feel that they're part of a community of like-minded people i mean let's face it we spend a lot of time at work so actually you need to get some job satisfaction from that and from the people that you work with motivation increases productivity and what motivates you are the people you work with the ethos of the company you're working for no that's it exactly i think we're in an age now and there's the research has been done around this how the amount of days for example that we lose through mental health issues uh, which obviously affects productivity and things like that so actually companies are recognizing that the more they can do to support support the well-being of their employees and be more empathetic to their personal and social needs is even more important not just in terms of recruiting people but also retaining people very few people leave work because they're not paid enough actually when you ask people as to why they've left an employer it's because they don't feel they have a great relationship with their team they have issues with their line manager the culture doesn't feel right they're just i've had a friend who who's left work recently just because she just she felt like she was on her own and she felt that everyone else around her was just you know just working in a different in a different place so she just she just felt like she fitted and if you're spending eight hours a day in that environment that's very challenging on your own well-being so i think it is important but i think it's just the recognition on both sides that actually these things are more important 30 years ago people just used they, they went to work they did what they were told they did their time they came home and actually people want more enriched lives they want something more which will help them will help the company if they and feel fulfilled. And it's been fulfilled. proven that actually yeah. that, you know, those sorts of things do contribute hugely to productivity and to business growth. But businesses want to be welcoming. Businesses want to bring in people who are motivated to work there. So it's it's how they approach that. Um, John talked about bringing in a diverse range of people helps to bring in different ideas, to bring in variety of cultures can change the way a business operates. Yes, John's been really proactive in encouraging diversity in his business. I know he spent a lot of time with the university and has taken on student internships and placements and has been really impressed with students who've come from other backgrounds and that's really enriched his business and his teaching and obviously those of his students who he's working with and things like that. So that's all about valuing people and employer understanding who they are and what they can bring to the company. And there has to be a recognition that 
businesses are live, vibrant communities. And actually, the best ideas come from people within that business. So actually, if you create that right environment to allow people to be innovative and creative and not be afraid to make suggestions and come up with ideas and explore those ideas, then then ultimately that's a win-win because the business will continue to be agile and innovative and embrace those ideas. And perhaps someone comes up with a great way of developing a new product or process or taking out cost or developing a new customer relationship or things like that. But also the individual employee feels valued. They feel they're using their skills and their abilities in different ways and they're being challenged. And so it enriches their role as well. And that's really important because it's so hard to recruit people now. The amount of employers I talk to and they're saying it's so difficult to find the right people. But then once we get them, we've trained them up and they go somewhere else because they are really good. So actually understanding what you need to do to retain those key skills and those key staff is really important. And the lesson is it's not just about money. And I think you were quite surprised when John mentioned when we talked about when you talked about his challenges and he, you know he said one of his biggest challenges is around is around HR and employment. And actually I, I agree. I think I think if you ask nine out of ten managers, I think you, they would all tell you that actually the people aspects of their role is very challenging because you have a duty of care to those people as well as the business. And actually you have this dichotomy where actually you you have very clear business goals and objectives that you need to achieve or that you're being asked to deliver on and things like that. But at the same time, you have this team of individuals who you need to support and nurture and develop and who all have their own individual characteristics and wants and needs. And you have to manage that and support that. Support is important, which John was very positive about the network of support that he has, mentors and and people like that who help him within his business. And that's so important. And you don't have to do everything yourself. And I think John, we go back to the start of the conversation about having a good plan, is that the fact John had a very clear plan of what he wanted to achieve personally and from his business. He was able to identify the gaps that where were the holes that he needed some help or support because he didn't have the resource or the knowledge to help him progress some of those goals and achieve some of those goals himself. And actually he was then able to go out and identify people who could support him within his within his broader network. And one of his you know, one of his biggest supporting mechanisms is that non-exec board where he's been very smart in terms of identifying the right people who can support him and fulfil, first of all, fulfil some of the gaps in his knowledge, who are from, some of them are from the sector, but know how this work in terms of a big business and things like that. So they, they understand where he wants to go and can, and can help him get there. And some of them as well also provided some of that technical support, some of that HR support and things like that. But having that trusted board of experts almost who who bring their own skills just helps challenge him a little bit so actually we sometimes need that challenge and John said that himself that challenge actually puts you in an uncomfortable position but 
it validates your thinking and actually it reassures you that you're going in the right direction or helps you realise perhaps a lot quicker that you're not before you start spending too much time or money going in the wrong direction. Thank you, Angela. I'd like to thank again uh, John Eno for uh, joining us today. And of course, I'd like to thank Angela Tooley, our business expert, for uh, helping me understand some of the business concepts we've talked about. It's been a pleasure as always. You've been listening to Inspired Business, a podcast from the University of Derby telling amazing and inspirational stories from businesses in Derby, Derbyshire and beyond. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review and tell a friend who might also like to listen. Also, if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the show, please get in touch. You can find contact details and more information about the series at derby.ac.uk forward slash inspired business. Thanks so much for listening.